Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. It's November 11. The price at the pump is higher. The price at the supermarket is higher, yet corporate spreads keep going lower and lower. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome once again to BI's monthly credit chat podcast. Today, we'll be discussing pockets of value and rising risk in a world where inflationary energy prices pressure the consumer, but not necessarily the provider. Our tank of oil, gas, refiner, and utility experts is full today, with our team of BI analysts, Spencer Cutter, Jamin Patel, and Paul Vickers joining us. Welcome, gentlemen. So, Spencer, why don't we uh, why don't we start with you? It seems like it wasn't really that long ago we were talking about distressed companies and bankruptcies, uh, and now we're talking about um, how high oil prices are and how um, how credit ratings haven't really suffered, and, and bond prices have, have have also filed prices higher. So, you know, where where are we in terms of credit? It seems like oil and gas prices are are, are super high and near their highest levels in, in years and years. Does that mean that uh, total return performance has followed or or, or not? Yeah. um, So performance has followed, but perhaps recently not as much as you might expect. Um, Energy has been the top performing sector in the Bloomberg High Yield Corporate Bond Index year to date, but most of those gains came earlier in the year. And uh, we've seen a nice run up in oil and gas prices since August, but you haven't really seen the commensurate run up in bond prices. So since the end of August to mid-October, oil prices were up about 22%. But bonds issued by Occidental Petroleum, Apache, and Continental Resources, which are some of the the bellwether uh, oil producers, were basically flat to up only 2%. And over roughly the same time period, natural gas prices were up by a whopping 47%. But uh, Chesapeake Energy, Range Resources, and Southwestern Energy bonds were up only 1% to 2%. So it kind of feels like we may have reached the point of diminishing marginal returns when it comes to uh, increases in commodity prices versus their impact on the bond market. Uh, Some of this is the backward-aided shape of the forward curve. So um, the market's kind of looking through current spot prices and the run-up and expecting oil and gas prices to come back down in the future. So they're not giving full credit to $80 a barrel oil uh, these days. Uh, But some of it, I think, is also just a zero-bound issue. The the yield on the independent energy segment of the Bloomberg High Yield Energy Index hit an all-time low of 4% in July. Um, Since then, you know, underlying treasury bond yields have started to trend higher. So it becomes increasingly difficult for bond, corporate bonds to offset those increases. Um, But there's also um, a fundamental shift going on, and that is, I think, the windfall from a lot of these higher oil and natural gas prices is going to accrue to shareholders rather than bondholders. Um, after a couple of years of you know, volatile oil and gas prices and a few near-death experiences, companies have, that have survived have set pretty aggressive long-term leverage and absolute debt targets. And thanks to you know, $80 oil and $5, $6 natural gas prices, many of them have actually hit those targets now or are expected to hit them in the next uh, six six months. And as a result, companies are increasingly steering this you know, incremental cash flow to boost shareholder returns rather than pay down debt. You know, the new, the new trend within oil and gas is to implement a variable dividend that basically pays out up to 75% of free cash flow every quarter. So it feels like, you know, if, if, if 
prices stay high, a lot of that's going to go to shareholders rather than the bondholders. Well, let, let's go back for just a sec, because this whole near-death experience. So I remember you threw out some crazy statistic. It was, I don't know what it was. It was something like 70% of all distressed companies were, were energy-related or 70% of distressed bonds were, were energy-related. Like, d- Did we see any bankruptcies? Are we completely now out of the risk of fault for the entirety of your universe and 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 if we are is is there any downside to energy any energy related company that you that you follow yeah so i think um yeah so at the the trough back in you know 2020 um and i guess it was around april i think it was 85 percent of the um bloomberg energy high yield energy index was trading at like distressed prices yeah, and the yeah. independent energy sector. Even worse than I said. <laughs> literally every single bond in the independent energy sector, save for like three or four, um, were trading at distressed prices. So yeah, it was it was pretty dire. Um and yeah, so today with eighty dollar oil and five, six dollar gas, um all the all those oil and gas producers are doing well. Um any you know bankruptcies that were gonna happen have happened. Uh, midstream companies are doing well. But you are continuing to see some stress on the drilling and services side of the of the market. Um, the the MO within the the producers uh, oil and gas producer market, uh, sector is to focus on generating free cash flow and not so much on increasing production, which means that they're not drilling as many wells as you might otherwise expect, given the commodity price environment we're in today. And so. Uh, offshore drillers, uh, the re- activity remains lower today, and, and onshore also remains lower than than, than you would think. Um, Transocean and Neighbors are two companies that are continuing. You know, th- they've seen a, a pretty good recovery, but I, I'd say they're they're not out of the woods yet. Transocean is one of the few offshore drillers that did not file by bankruptcy, so they're carrying a lot more debt than their competitors, and they've had to get pretty creative with their balance sheet and to uh, boost liquidity and extend debt maturities. And neighbors, um, you know, they're going to they're expected to generate a modest amount of free cash flow over the next couple of years. And by modest, I mean, you know, like 100, 150 million a year. But they've got 700 million of debt coming due and their credit line expires in 2023. So while things are starting to look up for them, the turnaround has been a lot slower than uh, it has been in the past. And I think it may take uh, another couple of years of prices at these levels before creditors can really breathe easy with uh, some of these drillers and services companies. Gotcha. So what if, you know, as people are sort of setting up their portfolios for next year and they're going through the, you know, here are the two or three things I need to be focused on in my energy portfolio for, for 2022, like, you know, what are those things bondholders should be, should be thinking about uh, today um, um, from an outlook perspective for tomorrow? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of them is, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the new trend, the new flavor of the day is to implement a variable dividend. And I would just focus on how much cash are these companies distributing to shareholders versus reserving to either you know service their debt or reinvest in the business. Um, and I also focus on capital spending and production targets. Everybody so far has been very good with maintaining capital discipline, maximizing free cash flow, and that means basically spending just enough to maintain your production uh, year over year. 
But I got to think with oil at 80 bucks a barrel, there are some companies out there, management teams that are just chomping at the bit, dreaming of ways that they can produce more oil while prices are, are this high. So I'd be looking for uh, increased cap CapEx budgets or acquisitions that could lead to more debt on the balance sheet. Um, and you know, while that debt may look fine today when oil is $80 a barrel, gas is five bucks, uh, Remember that you know most of that debt debt is still going to be there um, if oil gets back down to forty dollars, and at that point that debt may not look so good. So I just be focusing on on you know there may be some tricky ways some of these companies through acquisitions that are debt funded, you know, use that to expand production to try to gotcha. take advantage of the world today, and that could Before... come back to bite them in the future. Gotcha. Before we move on to, to Jamin, just from a personal perspective, uh, this has zero to do with, with credit, but just you said $5 uh, a gallon gas. You know, where I am in Connecticut, I'm seeing four bucks and change. Like, w w how high can gas prices realistically go in the next year? I mean, can we? Yeah, can we well, so just to, to be, yeah, just to be clear, and I should have been more, more clear. So when I'm talking gas, I'm saying natural gas. And that's, uh, you know, uh, so that's five, you know, that, that hit, that climbed more, north of six bucks um, last month. And, and that's the highest level in over seven years. Um, but in terms of gas at the pump, you know, we're at $80 oil today um and you know a lot of that is regional you know i'm out west here it's in california particularly uh you know the, the higher prices and some of it's tax driven but you know if oil prices do go back up to 100 dollars a barrel which some people are saying is possible given the economic recovery covid inflation um and the underinvestment that some people feel we're seeing in oil and gas production uh, you know I mean, I remember the days back in 2008 where, you know, four or five, five dollars a gallon or, or more, you know, was possible. Gotcha. Well, I guess it's not a shock why Tesla stock keeps going up and up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Jamin, why don't we drill down a little further? That's a pun intended there uh, into independent refiners. Um, I also, you know, the way Spencer was talking about, like, you know, these near death experiences, I, I remember at some point last year, like, didn't energy prices go negative? And, you know, you, so you basically can't give it away unless you pay somebody to, to take your, your, your energy. Now that, um, now that we're seeing so much higher prices and the, the bottom lines for uh, gas and oil producers is, is, is much different. You know, what, what does it mean for independent U.S. refiners? Yeah. So, Rob, um, Let's look at oil prices first. Um, you know, Spencer talked a, a lot about um, uh, where prices were, um, uh, but but you know, it's it's not so much about the actual increase in crude oil prices that have uh, contributed to higher cash flow and uh, and debt reduction capacity for uh, for in, uh, U.S. independent re uh, refiners as it has has for uh, producers, but rather what's contributing to those higher prices, right? So uh, you've, you've obviously got the supply side of the equation in OPEC plus. But if you look at the demand side of the equation, um, as, as we've had a global recovery, a post-pandemic re recovery, you've seen gasoline and diesel and now even jet fuel prices, uh, excuse me, demand um, come back, uh, you know, quite strongly. So um, that's what, you know, that's at least partly contributed to, to higher crude prices. Um, and then that's raised through, throughput capacity for U.S. refiners. Uh, particularly for gasoline and diesel, and and so we've seen a little bit uh, the refiners move a little bit closer to what we would call mid-cycle. So, demand side is 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 likely to stay strong for a, a while, and and it's that's obviously going to be 
positive for credit. What about the shift to renewable energy? I you know mentioned Tesla before. Is is there anything that's going on in the near term that's going to turn around this demand supply dynamic? Or is all the stuff that we're seeing in terms of, you know, cleaner energy, is, is, is that five years, 10 years away, really not going to impact um, security prices uh, in your world anytime soon? Yeah, so let's let's look at um, gasoline demand uh, first, and then uh, and then swing that into where renewables come in, right? So if you look at gasoline demand, it's almost returned to its pre uh, pre pandemic level here in the U.S. Um, and diesel, you know, it's about five or six percent off its uh, its uh, pre, uh, off those levels. Um, and as I mentioned, jet fuel demand, um, we've we've got Valero, one of the companies that we cover, that reported a step change uh, increase in jet fuel to uh, sales to about. 80% of uh, pre-pandemic levels. And management there during their, their last uh, earnings call said that they expect jet fuel to, to make a full recovery by the end of, end of next year. So now, if you're, if you're looking at uh, um, renewable fuel mandates, you know, one of the things you were discussing with Spencer was, was how high can natu- um, gasoline prices go? A big part of the price that you see today um, that sort of built into the crack spreads is the cost of these renewable fuel mandates, the 10% requirement uh, by fuel mandate. So if gasoline prices move, gasoline and diesel, of course, start moving to sort of within a range where um, regulators, legislators, et cetera, are not comfortable, um, you could see some of those re- renewable fuel mandates uh, start to ease. And, and there, there has been some hope recently um, there were some rumors um, floating around that that said that for the for the next session 2122 um, there would be uh, an easing of these mandates so if there is then obviously that's a positive for for refiners um, uh, particularly for PBF which has you know possibly been been the most impacted uh, by high uh, uh, rinse costs uh, but also someone like Valero that's got a, a you know a solid balance sheet or at least had one before it went into the the pandemic and has made a a pretty decent recovery so um, at this point I, you know there's a little bit of frustration building up because people don't know how to plan uh, for these um, uh, renewable volume obligations but um, the EPA has been dragging its feet a little bit there um, and they've also been dragging their feet a little bit on the small refinery exemption, which which was approved by the courts, um, but has to be uh, sort of rubber stamped specifically for companies uh, by the EPA. See, so you, so you mentioned a, a couple of specifics. So when you're thinking about the the bottoms up, and um, you know, it, it seems like there's um, you know everyone is is doing well. Um, is there any specific group? Uh, or small subsector that is benefiting more than others? And at the same time, um, is there a, a subsegment that might lag heading into 2022 that's not as advantaged as, as some others to to, uh, to really benefit from higher prices? Yeah, so I cover the LADAM uh, oil and gas producers. Um, and, and these companies generally have um, higher EBITDA margins than the majors. Um, and and they've but they've seen sharp increases in leverage from fuel de- uh, demand destruction as we went through the worst of the pandemic. So now normally you would expect uh, sustained higher crude oil prices to result in a relatively lower positive impact 
uh, on earnings for producers with high margins, right? So if you've got a, a, a lower EBITDA margin and crude oil prices move up 10 or 20%, that's gonna have a bigger impact to your bottom line because all that revenue goes to your margin um, and you've got a low margin to start with. But you know, when you look at LATAM uh, oil producers like Petrobras, Ecopetrol, uh, YPF, um, they all report higher EBITDA margins, not necessarily because they're more cost, cost efficient, generally they're not, but more likely because crude oil comprises a greater, production, uh, greater part of the production mixes, right? So higher crude oil prices, ignoring natural gas prices and the rally we've seen in them for the moment, if you're just talking about purely crude oil prices, then that's going to have a much bigger impact um, on, on these companies. So I think if, if uh, crude oil prices remain where they are um, or even follow uh, the, the, the backwardation that we're seeing in the forward curves, these companies will benefit more proportionally. Um, the other thing you've got to bear in mind that gives them an advantage when, when it comes to higher crude oil prices is their uh, respective sovereigns and, and economies. Uh, these economies are very, very dependent on these companies, you know, Pemex, um, Petrobras, and Ecopetrol, and, and also YPF, which is, which is a much smaller company, but the, the, the biggest energy producer in Argentina. Um, when you've got crude oil at, at uh, $80 plus, um, it makes a big difference to the export earnings or offsetting uh, import costs of fuels. Um, so I see more and more uh, reason for sovereign support for these companies. Gotcha, gotcha. Good stuff. Let's um, let's switch over uh, across the pond and, and see if the, the story is the same or, or, or different in, in Europe. Um, so, Paul, you know, I, I get it that like oil and gas prices are some they're really like this um, generic global price and it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily shift a, across seas but the ne- demand dynamics are different right i mean my limited knowledge of europe the uk there's smaller cars pre-covid there's tons of country hopping via via planes what are you seeing the same story type of stories playing out in europe higher prices better credit stronger profiles or, or, or is the story different in any way yeah, well, certainly things are slightly different in Europe. I and mean, obviously, the oil price or oil prices are generally generally global. You know, Brent is a, is a sort of UK benchmark that's usually taken as, as a, a global benchmark for many prices, and other other grades are priced off that. So, obviously, seeing the same strength here, really, that we see you know, whether it's in WTI or, or any other sort of blend of crude in the states or, or in Asia. Um, I think the more interesting thing really is gas markets, obviously, for. Uh, you know, logistical reasons are much more localized. You know, the U.S. gas market and, and the European gas mar- market can be totally disconnected, as they not quite have done, uh, uh, you know, over the last few months. But what we've seen in the U.K. and in Europe uh, is a massive spike in, in natural gas prices, and that it really reflects that. Yeah, you know, not this demand side. This is obviously improving demand. There's much more demand for for, for gas going into the heating season. Um, we've seen low renewables output, so we've had a lot of sort of gas-fired plant coming back on stream out of the reserve. But really, it's the other side of the coin. It's the um, the supply side, which has been really hit. Very low stocks in Europe, uh, very uh, limited Russian supplies, um, very high LNG prices in Asia, which are taking all the LNG cargoes out of the market. So all those factors combined, the gas prices have gone up, you know, went up by about a factor of uh, you know six times over 
over sort of six month period to really unprecedented levels uh, back in uh, about a month ago. It's come off that now, but they're still uh, against you know, historical values. They're still at like uh, madly high levels. And uh, you know, the question is, and this is feeding through to all the other sort of sectors of the energy industry as well, like the utilities, for example, we've seen uh, you know, power price on the back of fire gas prices spiking as well. Uh, you know, the question is really how can you sort of capitalize on that? And there's really, there's really few companies that really can. I mean, Gazprom uh, is the main supplier of gas to Europe. That's upping its supplies a little bit now. The only other one that we cover is uh, uh, Equinor from Norway. They're increasing their supplies into the market and they have very high spot exposure. So it's very good for them. Uh, doubly so because they're a big oil producer as well. Uh, but yeah, it, it's mainly the gas prices, the power prices have really sent shockwaves across Europe. Um, not so much the oil prices. I think, yeah, so pump prices for gasoline here are sort of manageable. Uh, yeah, as as, um, as the, the guys earlier said, the backwardation of the curve shows, you know, oil dropping from 80 plus now to maybe 75 at the end of next year and sort of 65 beyond that. So there's no great sort of panic in markets, unlike the gas markets. I think that's really the area of concern in Europe. It is getting better. Um, supplies are increasing, but still we're seeing uh, very high, very high inflationary pressures on, on consumer gas bills, uh, energy bills, and, and that's again taking its toll on demand, and uh, uh, yeah, and yeah, it has implications for you know, for credits in the sector. And, and Jamin, just sorry, go back to you. Do you, do you are you seeing uh, are you seeing the rest of the world going to follow what what Paul's talking about in terms of natural gas prices? Um, well, we've we've obviously we've seen U.S. natural gas prices move up quite a bit as well. But I I, I wanted to talk about you know Paul mentioned that um, we've seen them move up five or six times, and these are localized markets. You know certainly the U.S. natural gas market uh, in terms of prices has not moved up uh, anywhere near what Europe has done. And what that's done is it's given U.S. independent refiners a significant advantage. Um, natural gas comprises about 20-25% of the cost of, of uh, generally operating costs for any, any, any refiner. So when you've, you've uh, got natural gas prices that have moved up as much as they have in Europe versus what they've done here in the U.S., um, those who are in a position like Valero to, uh, you know, to, to facilitate significant exports are in a very, very good position. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen crack shreds uh, move up in addition to the RBOs. So... Um, that, along with uh, you know almost record low inventories for gasoline and, and diesel here in the U.S. and but but I would suspect globally as well um, has has driven a very positive environment for, uh, gotcha. for refiners. Gotcha. And and Paul, coming back to you, you know this is a totally one-off, and maybe it doesn't doesn't apply, but um, you know a few weeks ago we were we were talking um, about supply supply chain constraints. Um, and you know, one of the things we 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 heard um, was that in in the UK there's a lack of truck drivers. Um, both the combination of Brexit change rules and COVID rules does is that in fact affecting your market at all, or, or is the is transport all done through pipes in the ground, and that's not really a credit concern? Yeah, we seem to be through the worst of that at the moment. There's no more queues at petrol stations, and you know so, uh, that's easy. I mean, they they brought the army in in the end to to, you know, to to supply and drive the tankers. Um, so yeah, it's really that was really a very localized, uh, almost panic buying, and the fact that people were queuing up obviously depleted the stocks and actually created the shortage that people were afraid of. So again, that's fairly circular. Gotcha. Yeah, because Louise, Louise from the consumer side was was really emphasizing that was a, that was still a major hurdle, particularly heading into the holiday season. So w- why don't we get a little bit more specific and and just talk a bit a little bit about credit? So you know it. 
higher prices it, it's good for those that 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 are that are selling the, the the commodity. So, what does that mean in terms of capital needs, in terms of M and A risk or reward ratings? Um, you know, and, and and who are some of your favorite credits out there, and and, and who are some that um, you know you don't like as much? Yeah, if you look at the, I like heavily uh, European integrated oils and uh, Chevron, uh, uh, Exxon Mobil as well, so it's probably the US major. So if you look at the majors as a group, or, or uh, including like ENI and Equinor, I mean these guys have, have really trimmed down, uh, you know, their, their cost base. They've, they've cut their dividends in some cases. They've reduced capex. They've reduced you know, operating cost. And and yeah, people like uh, BP can now break even. Is it after dividends? After they've cut the dividend, around forty dollars a barrel. Exxon, the Chevron, they may be up near a 50. They never cut their dividends. That's the last thing they're ever going to do. Um, so, yeah, at all price 80, these guys are absolutely throwing up $30 of, of, of cash you know, for every barrel they're producing, which, which is absolutely massive. Um, you know, Chevron's talking at $60 oil going forward of, of throwing off $5 billion a year in free cash, and then at 70 another $5 billion. So it really is a question of what they're going to do with it. Um, you know, most of these companies have already repaired their balance sheets. They did peak in about Q4 20. Uh, they've come down every quarter since you know, in aggregates. Uh, they're probably tailing off now. Most have achieved their sort of targets. So you know, that's sort of it wasn't really credited upside. They've been downgraded, and the, the, the reality is they're not going to get upgraded again. They've hit their targets, hit their average targets. Now let's get back you know, get back on with giving this all back to shareholders, boosting dividends, and, and getting back to growth. So. You don't see much upside in there for the oil majors. I think maybe the two exceptions, uh, at least for the moment, are BP and Shell. They've got new financial policies where you know, their, their dividend is subject to maintaining their credit ratings. And uh, it's also, you know, they allocate, you know, I think Spencer alluded to earlier, a certain amount of um, cash flow, you know, the 40% in, in, BP, in BP's case, still going to debt reduction. Uh, and that's still the policy for 2021. Whether it carries on into 2022, we'll have to wait and see. If it does, you can still see Shell uh, BP deleverage, possibly some upside there. The rest of these guys, they're pretty much happy where the leverage is. They know they're not going to get upgraded again. It's not worth deploying the capital to, to the balance sheet to, to, to de- decrease leverage to the point that they're going to get an upgrade when they could just give it back to shareholders or increase dividends or spending. Uh, I think the other side of the coin, you see the, um, well, my universe anyway, you see uh, you know, the utilities. and. It's interesting for them. You think again with power prices at record highs, following gas prices upwards. Oh, they're slightly off now, but they're still several times the sort of historical average. You think these guys would really benefit from that? They're, they're generating power. Power prices are record. Why aren't they all uh, throwing off the same amount of cash as these oil makers? Well, I mean, the reality with these guys is half of them are, are generating coal uh, and gas-fired electricity anyway, which means their input costs have gone up. So their margins, the spark spreads haven't really changed that much. Uh, and then you get the likes of the renewables players. That's obviously a much, uh, much faster-growing segment in Europe. Uh, and they usually have fixed-price contracts for their uh, for their outputs. So they're not receiving any benefit from, from higher power prices. Uh, and that leaves, you know, hydro, it leaves and, uh, nuclear operators, you know, that very low marginal cost. These guys should be absolutely cashing it in. But, of course, you know, much more conservative than, than the oil companies who, who take spot price risk and, and shareholders accept that. These utilities, that they hedge their production up to three years forward. You know, investors in utilities don't want volatility. They want dividend stability. So what you see with these guys, they're often 90%, 100% hedge for 12 months at any one point, 12 months ahead, maybe falling to 70% in year two or 40% in year three. So these guys, it's price spike. It's going to pass them by, uh, particularly with the backwardation in the curve. They can put hedges on now at slightly higher prices than they have done in the past. So, yeah, we'll get a bit of earnings growth. They can lock that in. But... 
you know, the, the price spike, if it recovers as expected from Q1, is really going to pass them by. We're not going to see much of a credit upside there at all. In the meantime, those guys are focused on rolling out renewables, that are the capital constraints. You know, that most of the outlets are stable. That's because you know, they're, they're investing as much as they possibly can in renewables. The only limit to their growth opportunities at the moment is capital. And then, again, the other side of the fence, the oil majors are throwing off capital. And then likes of BP, Total in particular, really trying to get into the renewable space. So, you know, there may be some sort of synergies there between the two. One has surplus capital, one has deficit capital. Um, you know, BP wants to become essentially a renewables company over the next 40 years. It's, it's talking about a... Uh, or 30 years even, it's talking about a 40% decline in upstream production. It's talking about, you know, 50, 60 gigawatts of, uh, of solar power. It's absolutely massive. That would make it a, a major player in, in global terms in renewables. But, you know, it's very hard to get there organically. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there is a possibility, I think, that these majors decide to up their, uh, up their M&A activity, maybe look at some renewables players, maybe the, the U.S. guys who have very little interest in renewables. Uh, the majors, the whole majors anyway, maybe they look at acquiring some more small R&P guys, um, you know, at prices with their surplus capital. So it's definitely, I, I see a sort of uh, a convergence of oil and utilities, and they're both going for the same renewables goals. You know, one's capital constrained, and the other one's got a massive capital surplus at the minute. So, yeah, some times there would certainly make some sense. Gotcha. So if I had to put you guys on the spot before we end, and you had to guess where the price of a barrel of, of oil is going to be a year from now, what would you, the three of you say? Well, Don't I think it's saying 75. I think OPEC is underproducing at the minute. Uh, I think they're going to ease their tapering by the end of next year. So we'll be back to a sort of a, a, a more natural market condition. So I'll go, I'll go below 75. I'll go 65 in 12 months time. Good, good. Yeah, I was going to say something in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, 60 to 70. Um, I think you're going to see... Despite all these companies saying that they're going to be disciplined, uh, I think it's really hard for them to pass up increasing production at these prices. And so I think you see more oil coming onto the market, and that should help you know, push prices down a bit. So I'll, I'll just jump in with my two cents here. I, 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 think, I think 70, 75 seems the right level. But if we see jet fuel demand come back as, as strongly as, as some anticipate, um, that, uh, you know, that, that may uh, add a little buoyancy to, to that level. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, again, just from a personal level, I, uh, I, I hope the, the first two guys are right. <laughs> Lower the better for me. Um, this was a cool discussion. It really is. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing where we are in a, in a few months. Um, so thank you guys. Uh, and thank everyone once again for, for listening to our credit chat podcast. As always, if you need anything from the team, feel free to reach out to any of the analysts directly or simply access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred G. Stay happy and healthy until next month. May your longs be tighter and shorts wider. Bye bye.